You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined by my amazing co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And we have a special guest today. We have Ilana Frank, who is the founder of, say that your organization, because I don't want to mess it up. Sure. It's called the Jewish Fertility Foundation. Wonderful, wonderful. And we're kicking off a new series called Culture and Fertility, where we chat with people from different backgrounds about how their culture has played a role in their fertility journey. So we're really excited about that. We were talking to Ilana about um, what she's been doing earlier today, and it sounds like you went on a little archaeological (laughs) this afternoon or this morning. Not exactly archaeological. <laughs> Maybe historical. Um, historical would be better. Yes. So my husband, my husband is a fan of antiques in general, but he really digs antique cars. And so he got my three boys and I pretend to be excited about antique cars. We drove <laughs> an hour away early this morning to be able to visit a brand new museum. I live in Georgia um, about an hour away and got to it was very hard for the three year old to look and not touch. But um, it was fun and exciting and just a good time to spend, you know, some quality family time together. Was it mainly U.S. cars or was it cars from all over the world or? So that's kind of the thing. Um, It was only U.S. cars and it was a little bit like Georgia, so I won't get into it. But we were like, where are the Ferraris? Where are the outside of the U.S. cars? And it just it didn't exist. I think there's nothing prettier than like one of those big Buicks with the big like tail things on them and the big lights. And I mean, I think those are really cool, though. Did you, did you see any of those like convertibles? We saw everything. I mean, it looked like they were brand new. They had restored all of them. It was gorgeous. I did a good job pretending that I like really was interested. Uh, but my <laughs> kids love it. Like they love it. They really got that excited spark. So which one did you come home with then? I'm trying to get rid of one. My husband has a 1974 MG. Oh, that's a cool car. It's cool. We drive it. Yes. I feel like I'm from Mad Men. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's a, it's a convertible. So like, of course it's cool. So I can't believe I'm even talking about this. He would be so proud of me. (laughs) But no airbags back in 1974, I'm guessing. (laughs) So the kids do not get to drive in it. Yeah. We went to a car show yesterday that happened to be like right outside my husband's hospital as I went to go pick him up. And there was a, a 1914 Studebaker there. And the guy was telling me that those used to be the race cars and they would go like a hundred miles per hour. And this is, I mean, this car is over a hundred years old and it was one of the few that had windshields and it was like a little bit bigger than the size of a a round bathroom mirror that was just right in front of the driver's seat. And, and he was telling me all about, you take the fender, like bachelors would get it. They tool around town and then on the weekend, they take the fenders off and race them. And then if they made it to Monday uh, and were still alive, they would put the fenders back on and, and tool around town again. Yeah, there was an episode of Downton Abbey about that, about the racing, and one of the guys died in the race near Studebaker. I'm a huge Downton Abbey fan. Like, I have purchased Highclere Castle gin, and like, I want to go to <laughs> Highclere Castle. That is like one of my kind of bucket list things to do. But I'm always amazed. I'm like, 
the fortune of automobiles that were used to create that series is absolutely amazing. I mean, there's times that I'm just like, just look at those cars. I mean, it's cool. I mean, it's just amazing to see those cars that have been reconstructed and brought back to their original beauty and honor. It's just so cool. They're truly like pieces of art, really, when you see them and they're all spiffed up and shined up. They are. They are. All right. Well, let's do our question of the day. Hello, Docs. Found your podcast and it's been a refreshing source of info that is digestible and not full of doom. (laughs) That's always good when we're not full of doom. Yeah. (laughs) We appreciate that. My wife, 30, and I have been trying to conceive for the better part of two years. We are both in good health. After we got married, she stopped birth control and her OB told her it could take a few months for her cycle to regulate. It never did. A few months ago, she began having consistent spotting and light bleeding. Concerned, she went to her doctor who told her that she thought it was PCOS. And after an ultrasound, they found a polyp and they wanted to remove it. What are the chances that after surgery, we are able to conceive naturally? Is it time to visit a specialist? Thank you for your time. So when you're talking about polyps, as with other things in life, size matters. (laughs) Um, And so if... If it's just a really dinky little polyp, then that's probably not going to impact your fertility chances at all. If it's a big polyp, then maybe it will. But the bigger thing that I'm hearing is that she's not having regular cycles, which means she's probably not ovulating, which means it's going to be a lot harder to get pregnant. Not impossible because eggs can pop out whenever they damn well please. However, it's much harder to predict. And so I would say, you know, get the polyp out, optimize what you can. But I think given that history, you're likely to need, need a little extra help to ovulate because once you get past just a couple of months, like by the time you're six months out from stopping birth control, if your cycles aren't regular, it has nothing to do with the birth control. And before then, if you don't get regular periods, it's got nothing to do with the birth control. So I think you're probably on your way to see a specialist. I would say start paying attention to nutrition and exercise because for many patients, uh, even a five to 10% loss in weight can improve optimization. You know, obviously don't listen to that if her weight's already low. Like we are not looking for anorexia here. That does not help and is counterproductive. That is not what I'm saying. But those are kind of the things that we're looking for. And you're probably going to be in a good position to go see somebody. The fact that she went to her OB-GYN means she probably had a polyp that was visible on ultrasound, not saline ultrasound. So when you go see the three of us, most of us are diagnosing polyps via saline ultrasound, which is a special test where we put some fluid in the uterus. If you have a polyp that's big enough that you can see on regular ultrasound, that baby probably needs to come out. (laughs) Mm, True story. Good point. Well, and I'd just like to end on a positive note. So she said that we give positive information. I would just like to say that, you know, this PCOS, when you give it a name, it sounds scary, but basically it's just a situation where the brain's not communicating with the ovary. And so, you know, a lot of times that's really treatable. In fact, if I see a young woman and your partner's young, she's 30. When I see a young woman who has PCOS, I'm like, yeah, baby, that's that's a chip shot. We're going to get her pregnant. So I think your chances are great of getting pregnant. It's just she may need some medicine to kind of regulate her hormones so that the ovaries and the brain talk to each other. Good stuff. All right. So Ilana, why don't you tell us a little bit first about your foundation and how it got started and what it does? And then we'll kind of jump into the Jewish faith and fertility issues. So I am the CEO and uh, founder of Jewish Fertility Foundation. And we are a community-based direct service organization. So we do three main things. We give out money. We give out fertility grants in order to hopefully have healthy babies. 
We also provide emotional support and educational programming to the communities that we're serving. So like many of us in this space, it comes to me personally. I experienced years of infertility before having my three awesome kids. And it actually goes hand in hand with um, what we're talking about today, faith. And I'm happy to go into it. My journey started almost 13 years ago. I thought you get married, you have babies, like that's just naturally what happens. And right when I got married, my husband and I, we made Aliyah or we moved to Israel to live. And oh, wow. clearly you hear in my voice, I'm, I'm American. I live right now in Atlanta, Georgia, but my father's Israeli. I grew up uh, going to Jewish day school and it was, we learned about Israel and the life there. And I always had dreamed about living there. So I grabbed my husband and we moved to Israel. And so we started, you know, trying to have babies and we just, it wasn't working. And so in Israel, when I first went to the doctor, only after three months, the doctor didn't ask me how long I've been trying, which might be one of your first questions. So this is a little unusual because we don't usually see patients who've only been trying for three months. Once in a while we do, you know, and it breaks our heart because we'll have people who they're like, yeah, we've been trying for six years. So what made you at three months be like, hmm, I need to go get this checked out? Well, first of all, I was 29. To you, I know that's really young. But <laughs> in my observant Jewish community, like people were having babies a lot earlier. To me, that was like, okay, I wasn't 21. And normally when I try something, it works. We were already married over a year. We weren't on birth control, but for three months, we were really trying. You're off birth control for 12 months, though, right? I was never on birth control, honestly. So okay. it was over 12 months having unprotected sex. Yeah. And trying really hard for three months. And truthfully, in my head, I'm like, something doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong. Yeah. And I thank God trusted my gut and got the process started. It wasn't a reproductive endocrinologist. It was my gynecologist. Mm -hmm. And I was still navigating uh, socialized medicine in Israel. So like, I'm still this American used to like paying for my treatment. And very quickly, she's like, okay, you've been married over a year. Clomid. What naturally happens? You think you're going to get pregnant month after month after month, not getting pregnant. I confided in my aunt who works in healthcare in Israel and said, something's just not right. I went to the doctor. She said, you know what? I know a great reproductive endocrinologist. He wasn't part of my insurance plan, but she gave me his number and I contacted him and he has a private office. So I was going to his house in the evening and for months, um, he never checked me. He was the head of a big uh, hospital in Israel. Never checked me once. My husband was doing his business in his bathroom and, you know, handing him a cup, looking at his sperm in a microscope, the whole thing bizarre, but like, what did I know? And <laughs> ultimately he was doing IUIs month after month after month on me. We were paying for it because we're American and like, I wanted a baby and he wasn't part of my insurance plan. And after month, after month, after month, like we're still not talking about this. It's private. It's causing a lot of conflict between my husband and I. He just wants me to get pregnant. He doesn't know what to do. I literally at this point think I'm the only one in the world going through this. And also 13 years ago, like internet wasn't what it is today. Right. And finally, at one point, we're like, this is something again, feels weird. And so we, you know, talk again to my aunt, who's really the only person who knows about it. My parents in America don't know what's going on. Friends and family don't know what's going on. And my aunt is like, well, do you know how to have sex? Maybe you get vacation. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I don't know how to have sex. Maybe like, because there isn't, he isn't diagnosing us with anything. My husband's sperm is fine. Like there's no diagnosis and I don't even know to push it. Ultimately, where this is like a year in, we find another REI and 
What does he do? My tubes are actually blocked. Oh my God, I've been through going this for a year and no, not one person has checked me. And that's crazy. And click, click, click on his computer. Oh, you're eligible for IVF. Three months later, do the procedure free. Um, in Israel, it's a socialized medicine country. That's awesome. You got into it in three months? Yes. That was 13 years ago, though. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how it works in other countries. It was really easy. Like it was just, I was at the right doctor at the right time. That's beautiful. There's something in Israel called protexia, which is like maybe a connection mixed with protection. Maybe my aunt helped me because she was in the insurance company, but like it was not a hard problem to go through the. And also, I decided I wanted to use a private clinic. And I think I paid at the time, maybe like $200 for two kids. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Wow. If I didn't want private, it would have been completely free. But once I identified my problem, I retrieved a ton of eggs in Israel. They were putting in a lot of embryos at the time. My first two children started off at twins and then they weren't, but I have now a almost 11 year old, almost nine year old. And then we came back to America for my husband's work and I knew I wasn't done. And this is also going back to the Jewish faith. The community that I'm in, we value children and family, and that's part of our nature and part of our life. My husband and I envisioned a family of at least four kids, always. Like that was just the plan. And at this point, I had extra embryos in Israel. I left my husband and two babies at home in America, and I didn't need him anymore. And I was flying <laughs> to Israel. So because it was, I was still within the system for free. I was still within the system. And even at the point when I wasn't paying for the insurance anymore, I think I like negotiated with my doctors. It was like $800 to do a transfer. It was like, it was nominal compared to America, but it wasn't working. I was not getting pregnant. And I did that several times. And we said, we're not going to do another egg retrieval. Talk about tension between my husband. He's like, just focus on the kids we have. I'm like, it's hard to because my mind is other places. And we tried to adopt for several years. Secondary infertility is hard, no matter. Exhausting. People brush it off and it's like, oh, well, you've already had kids and there's still that pain and grieving process you're going through because you haven't been able to accomplish the family that you have desired. People don't get it. Even my mother, you know, at this point, I mean, this is many years later when I ultimately adoption wasn't working. And ultimately I decided part of the business that I do is I help people match up embryos, Jewish embryos that are remaining with people who need it. And I really wasn't considering myself because I wanted to adopt. Like that was my mindset. And my husband and I went through the foster care program. And ultimately he was like so much more altruistic and he wanted an older sibling unit to help. And I just, I wanted a baby that I could make my own. And I just, again, tension, tension. And I was like on this path and I just knew I wasn't done. So fast forward, an awesome woman reaches out to me to try to help match her embryo with another family. And I really wasn't considering myself. Something clicked one day and I was like, hey, what about me? And she's like, "Okay, done. So trust me, it was not an easy process. It took about a year from the time we were like done. And now I have a three-year-old. So that's such a great story. And his name is Matan, which means gift in Hebrew. So, but yeah, I mean, that's my personal journey. It was not easy. It's like, I never felt done. I'm blessed with three kids, but like, I never had the choice. I'm now 43 and I'm, if I want to keep my awesome husband, like he's out, but um, (laughs) like he's out. He's done. Oh, so what I was going to say about my mom is that she basically, they sat me down. My, my husband and my mom <laughs> I had these two embryos from the donor 
And I was like, okay, if one doesn't work, like I'll put the other one in. I didn't want to like waste the opportunity that they both wouldn't work. And so they sat me down there with, we love you. We're, we're done. You're going to put both in. If it's twins, awesome. Great. You'll have the four kids you want. If not, like this is it. You're done. Like we can't deal with you. Like we just can't. And it was a real conversation. You know, I was like at the point of really destroying like everything, like just because I was on this path and mission to grow my family. But thank God it worked. And it was one. So was that a helpful conversation or not a helpful conversation? I know it was a conversation done in love. It was done in love. And um, I recognize now looking back, I was a crazy person. Like I was probably willing to get a divorce for my husband in order to have another child, which is like something crazy thinking about it now. And they were able to see what was going on. I was not. You were able to see the forest for the trees and you couldn't. I couldn't see it. Even with therapy and with help and with everything, thank God it worked. I don't want to even go to what would have happened if it didn't. That's really nice of you to share that because I think a lot of people don't realize what an emotional journey it is. And even the choice to use a donated embryo, sometimes it's a really, really tough choice. I just had a patient on Friday who's kind of grappling with that issue. And I said, you know, it's rare that I meet a person or I, I can't think of a person I've met that has ever read a doing it. It's always a really hard decision on the front end. But all the times that I'm aware of when people have done it, they're just so grateful. And they're like, what took me this long to decide to do this? You know, so, but I appreciate you sharing kind of both aspects of that, both your fertility journey and your, and your journey with your husband too, because that plays a lot into things as well. Yeah. So, um, and then during this time, um, we're now entering our eighth year of the organization. We started in Atlanta, Georgia, and I really thought coming from my experience, like, and then learning in is in America, how much money it costs to try and have a family without insurance coverage. And, you know, it's really expensive. And my background has always been in fundraising and nonprofit. And I was like, okay, let's help raise money to give money. But I didn't understand, like you were saying, like how important the emotional aspect of this entire journey is and was. And, and now that's like a huge component of our growing organization. Well, that's wonderful. So when we look at women and men of the Jewish faith, and they are faced with fertility, what are some of the things that you have found that are helpful and maybe some things that are challenging? I guess I'll start with the challenging part. Like we're ingrained, especially those of us or those individuals who are part of the more observant community, like the Sabbath and holidays and synagogue is a central focus of our lives. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. When you are without a family, when there is a service or Shabbat or Sabbath meals or holidays that are so central and kid focused and family focused, and you don't have that, like, where is your place in this religion? Yeah. I mean, you can say the same thing to being single and not married. You don't have that connection to people. It's a reminder of something you're struggling with in a time that you, it's not blatant that it's a reminder, but it's there and it, it tugs at your heart. All the time. And I think that, um, you know, our organization and people within the Jewish infertility space, we try to come up with ways that our clergy and our rabbis can make sure that there is a space for everybody in the synagogue and around the table. Also, just being able to invite people to your house, even if you are childless, and really give them room, you know, to say also opt out and say no, like the circumcision, the bris, or uh, baby naming. These are really emotional times, mm -hmm. or even like kids' birthday parties. 
as we know, people who are experiencing infertility, I think there's that hard piece of like, should we invite them? Should we not invite them? Like, wh- what should we do? And I always would say like, extend the invitation, but genuinely be okay for them to opt out. So I think just like our therapists say, it's okay to like take some you time. It's the same thing within the Jewish community and the Jewish communal space. Just in general, is there anything, and I don't think there is, but um, the reason I'm asking the question is I don't know for sure. Is there anything in the Jewish community that limits like what couples can do when they come for fertility treatments? Yeah, there's some Christian religions that have, you know, kind of limitations about what their expectations are for their members. So anything in the Jewish community that's unique to you guys that challenges patients sometimes? So I have one actually more. My question was about a, a lot of my Jewish patients. The reason they're coming to me is because they're ovulating before before they can go through mikvah. And so we need to adjust the timing. And, and for some of the guys, when we ask for a semen analysis, they're like, no. And it makes it a lot more challenging because it, there are things that you know are really helpful for me to find out. And if I can't get a sperm sample, then I'm missing a huge portion of what we can do. So can you comment on those things in particular? Because I see those pretty frequently. Sure. So one of our favorite educational trainings is working with fertility clinic doctors, nurses, admin staff, finance directors, not only on infertility sensitivity within the Jewish community, because I think it's important just to know, like, what did you just talk about? The mikvah. Yeah, what is that? I don't even know. (laughs) Sure. So it is a body of water. It looks like a mix between a hot tub and a swimming pool Hmm. where basically you can go in and be impure in a holy religious sense and you can transform to being pure. And so women who are observant, this is not every single Jewish woman you're meeting. These are women who are following a more observant or orthodox lifestyle. And you might recognize that they're wearing a wig or a head covering, and then their husbands are wearing a kippah or yarmulke, but they follow something called family purity. And so basically it's two weeks on for sex and touching and two weeks off. And so once you are done and then you're waiting a certain period of time from your menstrual cycle, you immerse in the mikvah and you're ritually pure. For some who are experiencing infertility, this can be really hard. For some who have losses and miscarriage, this could be really healing. But regardless, there's this body of water. So what Carrie was saying was that some people who are then going to go have sex with their husband, they're missing that window of ovulation. And so it might not be infertility. It's something we call halachic infertility. It's not something my organization will pay for an IVF cycle, but it is something you amazing doctors can actually manipulate. Can we put on birth control pills to like align with the cycle or how does... What we would say as an organization is we do not tackle halacha, which is the Jewish law. We say... We will give our clients or patients the rabbi's number that suits them the best, whether they're Orthodox, conservative, reform. I do not want to touch this (laughs) because I do not want to get involved in the nitty gritty of the religious conversation. We will present them with the educational tools to make their decisions. But what we do is we go into the fertility clinics and we train everybody that these are the questions that might come up. Be patient with your patients because they might, especially if they're Orthodox, they might have to have conversations with their rabbis about specific cases. Now, one of you was asking, what is okay? And there's so much that is okay. 
Very little is not okay, but many people who care enough to ask these questions are going to seek advice of their rabbi. So even for me, I'm what's called modern Orthodox. So my hair isn't covered. My husband doesn't always wear a kippah, but we do keep the Sabbath laws and we do follow other rules. Um, so I cared enough to ask my rabbi when I was considering embryo donation. And so there are certain criteria that are important for me and for our community that might look different in somebody else's Jewish religion. Such as what? For me, it was very important that the donor egg was Jewish, of Jewish descent, but actually that the donor sperm was not. Because it's through the maternal line that you maintain, I don't know what the right term is, but I know this from some of my Jewish friends, that it's like, if your mom isn't Jewish, then you're not really Jewish. Is that the right term? Yeah. And like, of course you can convert and that's all cool. And then the baby would go back to the mikvah to become Jewish, a little dunk in the water. Okay. So kind of like our baptisms in the Christian religion. Yeah. It's a full body baptismal font is actually kind of what it looks like. But for me, I had a little bit of a disagreement actually with my rabbi because we are in a known donor situation and we have an open relationship with the, essentially the egg donor. And so we knew she was Jewish I didn't have to like prove it um, because there was a situation where maybe the egg wasn't Jewish. Therefore, you should dunk the baby. And I'm like, uh uh-uh. Like, I know this woman. So no dunking involved. (laughs) I was like, I'll do whatever we need to. But the donor and my husband were like, hell no. We went this far. (laughs) We were not dunking. And like my rabbi was like, okay, like just get a note from her rabbi that she's actually really Jewish. So it worked out. Forgive my ignorance, but is this like a physical place in the synagogue or is this? Yeah, that's a good question. So it is a very, very private, obviously, because it's private. It has to do with nudity and yes sex life. So it is kind of like hidden away within a synagogue or outside of a synagogue. Okay. So even the one right near me, it's like a separate building right next to the synagogue, but it's like, it looks like it's like secluded. Women are go at nighttime after sundown. Like it's a very private ritual. Now the baby dunking is a little less private, can be done during the day, but yeah, you wouldn't have noticed it. It's not like out there. Follow-up question. Can you manipulate the two weeks? Like if we know when ovulation is. Do we like manipulate the two weeks so it falls in the right? That is a very good question for a rabbi. And there are absolutely (laughs) rabbis who are educated very specifically around these topics of family purity. Okay. And that's what I always say is like, don't just to the people who are asking, if they come to me, don't just assume it's a no. Because the Jewish faith wants to do everything in its power for you to be able to grow your family. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's an embarrassing conversation for people who are observing this. A young couple, you know, but they're really, really encouraged to ask the questions. You don't know the answer necessarily. And keep in mind, again, this is really only for the more observant Jewish couples. So getting semen analyses has been challenging in some patients because the purpose of the sperm is to create life. And so if you're using it for a semen analysis, it's not going towards life. And so when I have worked with prior patients, we usually delay getting the semen analysis as long as we can. We do all the testing on her first. And there have been a couple of times where the patients have gone to their rabbi and have said, okay, we're this far in, we don't know, can we please do this? And they've gotten the approval to do that. There have been other times where we've suggested, let's use a collection condom, but let's put a hole in it 
so that you still can get pregnant. It's just we get enough material to get the semen analysis. So how do you guys typically approach that? We don't approach it. We The only time we would have this conversation is with you all, is with the doctors that what the two options you just said are really the options that would come up. Yeah, I think that the condom with the hole is one of the best solutions. But there are cases that I've heard of that you also have to consider the timing of when they're going to give you the specimen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even the doctors are the ones after they've taken our trainings, like who'll be like, actually, why don't you ask your local Orthodox rabbi? They know that because sometimes when a, a young couple is coming to you, they don't even know all the questions to ask. Right. So they are in contact with their rabbi. It's not uncommon in these circles for the Orthodox couple to be in touch with the rabbi around this whole conversation. But it is awkward. It is embarrassing. And having you all as a partner in this is hugely helpful to even say, oh, have you considered, you know, asking your rabbi this question or like another one of my patients did this? And then it at least will spark that conversation. It sounds like a faith that going to your religious leader is very encouraged, especially in the areas of having trouble having children and things like that. Do you think because there is like this okay to talk about it, especially with your rabbi and that type of thing, does there tend to be more discussion amongst the community and your friends and in a more supportive network or does that backfiring? I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a great question. I kind of wondered that too. Yeah. Cause that's not something, not a conversation I would have had with my minister probably when I was early in my marriage. (laughs) Again, like I would say statistically we're as an organization, we're probably only dealing with 20% of our clients who are observant. Right. The rest of our client base is conservative, reform, unaffiliated, and even interfaith. They might not even have a rabbi to go talk to. Mm -hmm. And they're surely, if they do have a rabbi, not going to talk about their sex life or, you know, fertility issues. They're just not. They're not doing it. But for those 20% who are, what I've noticed is that within the Orthodox community, the stigma of infertility and talking about it is still really, really high. Mm. So I feel like it's, I don't want to make assumptions, but even like, Seven years ago, when we first started in Atlanta offering free support groups to women, all of Atlanta, the Orthodox community specifically was like, well, I need it to be private. How do I know it's anonymous? Lots of secrecy. Lots of secrecy. And then they only wanted the Orthodox community to be part of the group because they didn't want anybody else. Today, there's trust. And I think we've broken through, at least in Atlanta. Oh, that's great. Because everybody's involved now. Our groups are open to anybody, regardless of religious background. And, And now it doesn't matter. The commonality is the infertility piece. But in those early days, it was really, really shockingly secret, secretive. And when we enter a new community, because we're a scaling organization, when we enter a new community, we see the same thing happen in the Orthodox community. So we know now it's going to take some time. But you see the light at the end. It just takes time. I do. But I don't think even though they have this support from the rabbis, number one, maybe the rabbis don't even have the education they need in order to make appropriate conversations or you know advice. Maybe they're not asking the right questions. 
maybe they're not talking to them at all because they're embarrassed or don't know how to, or because it's such a stigma. We hear stories about people waiting years and years and years, and they don't even go to a doctor, but their ovulation timing is off, right? They don't even think to ask the rabbi. And like, they could have prevented this so easily if they just went to a doctor or went to the rabbi. One of the other things that I see is that my particularly orthodox patients, anything that happens on Sabbath, they can't come to their appointments because they're not going to get in a car and they're not going to get here. And so I find that we're trying to manipulate the cycle a little bit more so that stuff doesn't fall on those days. And every so often, you know, I'll I'll suggest like, hey, can you talk to your rabbi? Can you get permission? Because really your egg retrieval, if it happens on a Saturday, we're going to get better results than if I do it on Friday or push to Monday. So that's oftentimes an issue. And and sometimes staff and, and patients alike get frustrated because we're like, well, why can't you just come in on the Sabbath? Like, this is to make a baby. Like, come on, give us a little something. And and that's a very common push point, both for patients and for clinic, because we're like, we're trying to do our best by you. But if we can't, we can't. So I think that's also where we as an organization can help and step in. Number one, you know, hopefully your team would be prepared to understand this might be a concern from the onset. Yeah. Hopefully the patients know to tell, you know, the schedulers and the nurses that this is actually a consideration. Number three, there are some cases, number one, where a rabbi can make an exception. I've heard this. I am not a rabbi. Let's talk to your rabbi. <laughs> and then the fourth option, which is a creative one, is because we're in we're in five communities now, I can help make a match that you can sleep at somebody's house next to the clinic or help set you up at a hotel so you don't have to drive and that you can theoretically walk to retrieval, transfer, whatever you need. That's cool. Gotta be a little creative, you know? Yeah, that's that's a great creative idea. So is there anything specifically about any of the procedures we do? And I'm kind of thinking about IVF. Carrie just sort of mentioned one that's a little bit different. Any thoughts on what the Jewish community as a whole thinks about IVF? Is it mostly acceptable? As a whole, modern medicine and our doctors are miracle workers. That is what we believe. Certain more observant groups might have some thoughts about how it's done. I believe as a whole, we are into it. I mean, we are so thankful. And, and no, that's my impression too, but I just, I, I wouldn't sure. Yeah, absolutely. Coming from Texas, I definitely have some Jewish friends, but our Jewish communities are not that big. But while I was in medical school, I actually did a four-week rotation up in New York. And most of my experience was with women who were actually visiting with maternal fetal medicine doctors, high-risk OB doctors. But because the Jewish community has a higher incidence of recessive diseases, because it is a small community for many, many eons, um, they've been very receptive to things like carrier screening. I mean, to most Jewish couples, it's like, of course, I'm doing carrier screening. You know, it's nice to be able to have that understanding of these are things that hide in the family tree until the right person meets the right person. And, you know, it was always nice to be able to be like, you know, we do have this match, but there are wonderful things within our control that we can test embryos and be able to have healthy babies and stuff. And it it was a very neat experience. Yes, we give out money. We've given out almost a million dollars over the past seven years in grants and clinic discounts. That's so great. Yeah. And one of our requirements for all of the grants that we've given is that our grantees take a genetic screening test. We partner with an organization called J-Screen, 
They're testing now for over 200 genetic diseases specific to the Jewish community. There are others as well out there, but we're partners with them. We love them. And we expect our grantees to take this. I think it's like a $200 value right now. It's heavily subsidized. But yeah, like it's not just about bringing babies in the world. We're trying to bring healthy babies in the world. You know, I remember 20 years ago when I started, the Jewish community really led and, you know, even 20 years ago when I started it, where in my current position to do one test on one person was like $500. Well, nobody could afford to do like 20 different traits. But even then, the Jewish community was really, really on top of genetics and doing genetic testing to make sure couples matched. I mean, it was really impressive back that long ago, even. Very good. Very good. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a delight and a shout out to Carol Silverberg for introducing us. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this is an amazing organization and it it was very enlightening to have you here today and and spreading a little information education in the meantime. Thank you guys. I'm going to have you on my podcast. Absolutely. You would love that. We love it. You guys are fun. Um, I'm really appreciative. Thank you. You guys are a wealth of knowledge, really. And I'm, I'm excited to get to know you better. Same here. It's our pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And to our audience, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We are also available on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a like or follow and say hello. And you can also visit us on fertility.sunsensor.com to submit questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye.